If you're struggling to attract new staff or your team is experiencing burnout, pick up your phone and call Guardian Vets. Through virtual team solutions like after-hour triage, daytime virtual receptionists, callbacks, and telemedicine, Guardian Vets can help you have happy staff, happy clients, and a thriving business. Go to www.guardianvets.com and check Veterinary Success Podcast in the Where Did You Hear About Us section to get a free consultation and receive 50% off your first month of service. Don't wait. Check out GuardianVets.com now. Welcome to the Veterinary Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas. Before we jump into today's episode, we're going to take a quick break here from the sponsor of the show and we'll be right back. If you're struggling to attract new staff or your team is experiencing burnout, pick up your phone and call Guardian Vets. Through virtual team solutions like after-hour triage, daytime virtual receptionists, callbacks, and telemedicine, Guardian Vets can help you have happy staff, happy clients, and a thriving business. Go to www.guardianvets.com and check Veterinary Success Podcast in the Where Did You Hear About Us section to get a free consultation and receive 50% off your first month of service. Don't wait. Check out guardianvets.com now. You've heard me talk about the opportunity in urgent care. So VetCheck believes in the power of your capacity to influence your patients, patient families, and be a leader in your community. How they do this is by giving you the freedom to take ownership of your future to make the biggest impact in your patients' lives. They equip you with a turnkey opportunity to take action on the dream through a unique pathway to owning your own VetCheck Pet Urgent Care Center franchise. They provide a solution to remove obstacles like competing against corporate dollars in the community that you want to be in and having access to hospital ownership, medical directorship, and more. Also, you become a partner along the journey. A vet check pet urgent care center franchise is the answer. If you're interested, check out episode number 80, where I talked to Dr. Siva and he shares more about his story and the opportunity. So if this sounds like something that's interesting, you reach out and learn how you can own your own vet check pet urgent care center franchise today by visiting vetcheckforpets.com, which again is vetcheckforpets.com. All right. So we are here today with Dr. Christina or Tina Tran, and she is an associate professor of practice and clinical relations lead veterinarian at the University of Arizona. She got her DVM at the University of Illinois. She's worked as the program director for Purdue's Veterinary Technician School, and today at Arizona has worked and built out the clinical year rotation in a new kind of hybrid and distributed program. It's really unique, and we're going to get into that a little bit more in our conversation. She's a past president of the Multicultural Veterinary Medical Association, or MCVMA, and also a founding member. And last but not least, because she also sits on the Arizona Examination Board Investigation Committee. So, Dr. Tran, that's a lot to get <laughs> into, but I'm really excited to have you here, and I'm so glad that we got connected. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me, Isaiah. Yeah, and so I wanted to start a little bit, and you can take this wherever you want, but one thing that stuck with me, and I've heard it in other conversations with clients, but also guests in the podcast, and sometimes it's been like off the recording, but you made a comment about a term early on in your career about mommy guilt. And I think that term I hear a lot, but I don't think people articulate it quite as well as you did, like putting a name to it. They just feel it. They don't know how to like say it, but they feel that. And so I wanted to just chat through kind of your journey in veterinary medicine. Cause I don't think when you graduated, it was like, oh, I'm going to get into academics. Like that's always the goal. Just everything kind of evolved, but kind of walk us through why you felt the way that you did and what that did to lead you into what you're doing today. Yeah. So I think we'll take 
like this big leap backwards because our oldest is now, I can't even believe it. He's 17. He's about to enter his senior year of high school. So it's a little bit mind boggling to how we got there. And so at the time when I was pregnant with him, I was still working as a full-time associate in a small animal practice out in Northern California and still very much had in in my mind that I was going to be a full-time associate and eventually own a practice whether it was that practice or another practice and having children was just part of the journey and our son was born I took probably 8 weeks off had already pre-planned that I was going to come back part-time at that same hospital and then realized very very quickly I think that's when the mommy guilt started to set in this feeling of you're trying to be all things to all people all the time. So I would spend time at home caring for our son when he was an infant and then feel like, gosh, you know, I spent so much time getting into veterinary school in veterinary school and as a veterinarian. And now I'm like at home changing diapers and, and feeding and, and all of those things that are still very important to me. And I felt like, well, part of it was I felt like I needed more interaction with adults, <laughs> quite frankly. And I wanted to make sure that I was still using my degree my veterinary degree, because I was working part time, then I would put him in daycare. And then I would go off to the private practice and work part time. And that entire time, I was trying to figure out how quickly can I get out of my appointments? How quickly can I finish up my surgeries and my phone calls and my record keeping? So then I could go back home. And so then you felt in that practice setting, the mommy guilt of, gosh, why did I have a child if I now put my child into daycare all the time? And so it was kind of like this very push and pull thing that happened for multiple years because we then had another child soon after that. Well, maybe not soon after that, like within three years of that. And I think for a lot of people, the two versus three or more children in veterinary medicine is oftentimes like the big tipping point. Because for us, it was a real deciding factor as far as financially, can we afford to have more children? Because what that means is I'm spending less time working. And when I am working, that money is turning around and going to daycare costs. And once you get to like three children, for most people, you're not even making enough to cover the daycare costs. So that was in one way or another, that was kind of that ongoing mommy guilt. And even now that we have two teenagers, it shifts a little bit. It's not so much because I'm now in academia. So the mommy guilt looks a little bit different. And so it looks more like, gosh, I really want to go to this veterinary conference either for work or just to further my own education. But then I feel like, oh, but then that means I'm away from the family. And even if the family comes with, I think we all know how that works. You can't do both things at the same time very well. So even if your family goes with you to a conference in a destination location, it's really hard to spend quality time with your family and spend a lot of quality time as a veterinary professional in that setting. So, you know, the saga continues. So when you move from kind of the clinical practice into the initial part of working in academia, you had mentioned in our conversation that the idea of public speaking was terrifying. But again, going back to the feeling that you had of like, I'm a really well-trained, have a lot of like this money and time spent being a veterinarian to then go switch to do something different and learn new skills. That's really challenging. A lot of people just like the sunk cost of all the time and energy spent over here to get my DVM. Like, why would I want to then go teach? But it struck me when you said that you were terrified of public speaking, because I was like, man, I just don't see it, right? Like we're talking and I don't see how that could be the case. But talk a little bit about how you ended up moving, making that decision to teach and what that's done, because that's kind of been a lot of your kind of career 
trajectory from that standpoint, although you're involved in a lot of other things as I talked about earlier. You kind of hit the nail on the head is that I think I was at a point in my career, I was probably about 10 or 12 years in as a veterinarian. And we had two young children at the time. And so it was part of it was the stress, the stress of trying to get from A to B to C, picking up kids, dropping them off at daycare, making it from one relief practice to another, to the shelter, et cetera, working as a veterinarian, put a lot of strain on our family because it was we didn't have other family and friends that we could depend on. So it was really up to my husband and I to manage the children as far as getting them everywhere and making sure they were cared for, et cetera. And we both had full-time jobs. And so part of it was this realization that I've been in practice for a while. I've been doing shelter medicine for a while. I'm kind of like looking for something different. I was geographically bound. It was not a time where I could just pick up and move to a job. And the idea of academia and teaching kind of intrigued me. But then the reality was I had no formal experience teaching. I was terrified of public speaking. And while I'd sat through lots of PowerPoints, I never actually had put together (laughs) my own PowerPoint. So I wasn't exactly sure how that was going to work. And so I just kind of took like this leap of faith to say, as veterinary professionals, we have a lot of transferable skills. So while you don't necessarily formally teach in a practice setting, in a shelter setting, in a lot of these settings, we are teaching on a regular basis. We are teaching the volunteers that are around us. We're teaching the newer veterinarians and technicians that are there. Sometimes we're working with other staff to get them up to speed. And so there's that piece that I think we oftentimes forget we are very much educators on a regular basis. And I kind of got over the whole fear of public speaking for the most part. I will say if it's a larger audience and I can't count heads, then I get a little bit nervous. But I think the vet tech setting was really good for me because most programs max out at 30 students. And so it doesn't really feel like a gigantic lecture hall. So it's a good transition for somebody who's looking to move into academia where you do have to do a lot of public speaking. And then I learned how to do the PowerPoints and all the other pieces of it too. So that kind of came along with it. And so I'm much better at PowerPoint now. (laughs) Yeah. Like you said, you have a lot of different skills. Learning PowerPoint, you can do that. Like you're (laughs) smart, right? You can all figure that out. It's just, uh, it's a desire. Like, is that something that you enjoy doing? But I think the idea of kind of being educators and explaining the why into the team, but also to then people that are coming to see you for your expertise is is super important of being able to to communicate. So then you moved to Purdue and you talked Mm -hmm. about when we chat a little bit about, you learn a lot of different things around leadership and leading a team within veterinary medicine, but I don't think it's any secret to anyone that's listened to this or anyone in veterinary medicine, that leadership and like mentorship has been tough uh-huh. in veterinary medicine. Like that's a lot of people, especially young grads. And we'll probably get into that a little bit talking about what you're doing in Arizona. Of like, well, I want to make sure I get mentorship. I want to make sure I get this foundation to help kind of be a springboard for the rest of my career. what do you learn about kind of leading teams when you were able to do that? Because again, Going back through vet school, like that was not something that we were formally trained in. Yeah, I think one of the big things I learned about myself as it relates to leadership during my time at Purdue, at the time I was the vet tech program director, essentially in charge of the bachelor portion of what was happening at the vet school at Purdue. And they have both an on-campus program and an online or distance learning program. And so it's quite a robust vet tech program. And I had multiple people on staff that were working with me, a team of as many as I think like 10 at some point that were directly working with me. And then obviously we had lots of other instructors from the teaching hospital that were doing lectures and providing clinical lab support as well. And I think what I learned 
pretty early on is that I was putting too much pressure on myself. I was putting way too much pressure on myself to be perfect, to make all the right decisions all the time. And what I learned from talking with those that were close to me is that what they were needing in order for them to be able to move this program forward and to feel valued and listened to is they needed for me to tell them, here's the dilemma that we have. Here's the challenge that we have. So how can we work together to figure out the solutions for this? And it was hard for me to do that early on because I felt like because I was the program director that I had to have all the answers and I had to be right all the time. And what I learned over time is that oftentimes the best way to come to a solution is to involve the people that are the boots on the ground so that the team that you have and the people that they have working around them and oftentimes even the students because the curriculum directly impacts them. So rather than thinking in my office by myself, like how can I make changes to the curriculum that will be good for not just the students, but the instructors for the program, et cetera, is to just open it up and say, here's the challenge we have ahead of us. So how can we make this better? How can we improve things? And that's when I think by letting go of that fear of not having all the answers, I think that's when our team really grew, that we were really able to make some great strides within the program, involving the people that were closest to the solutions. Do you think that's similar? I, I know you talked about practice ownership was one of the goals a long time ago that that did shift over time as you... Do you feel like as a, if I'm a clinician or if I'm a practice owner, the same idea that you just explained, if I'm going to make changes, do you think that's same transition, same thought process there as far as letting the team help dictate the decisions and the adjustments that the practice needs? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that's the case. So when I think back to the times that I was a full-time associate, you know, I kind of had differing experiences with the leadership team that was in place. So in some instances, the veterinarians and technicians and all the staff were given opportunities to give input to say, again, here's the challenge ahead of us. What do you all see as possible solutions? What could that look like? And in those situations, we felt very much a lot of the ownership of saying, okay, well, yeah, if they're asking me, I think this is the way the flow of taking in patients and discharges, et cetera. And I know this because this is what I do day to day. And so involving those people in a practice setting, again, is a really great way not only to get to the best solutions faster, but then also to get the buy-in. Because if people have the ability to give their input, then I think it's a little bit harder for them to push back and say, like, that's not a good solution when it's like, but you actually gave me your input or you had the opportunity to give me your input. So from an associate's perspective, yeah, I think that's a great way to approach it, even in the practice setting. No, I agree. The work that you're doing in Arizona right now, so you don't have a teaching hospital, right? And I wanted you to kind of outline that because again, as someone that's never went through vet school, like most listeners have, right? So they're like, okay, I kind of know what year to year it looks like, but tell me about what you're building out and kind of what that looks like with some of the goals, but also the relationships that you're building to give what I would call real world experience up front. Yeah. So like a lot of the newer veterinary schools, University of Arizona, we will not be building a veterinary teaching hospital. So in all programs, actually, in the United States, at least the last year, if not longer, is spent doing rotations in hospital settings and clinical settings. And so if you have a teaching hospital on campus at a vet school, which most do right now, what that means is, and that's the program I came from at Illinois, is then you spend 
whatever the amount of rotation is. So typically it's anywhere from two to four weeks of time in different services within one teaching hospital on campus. And so much like a human hospital, they'll have like a place for cancer patients. So oncology, they'll have dermatology, they'll have, well, maybe not in a human hospital, but they'll have behavior, right? And then they'll have surgery and internal medicine and emergency and ICU and all of those different parts that you would typically see in a human hospital. They have those same services offered in most veterinary teaching hospitals. And so as final year students, you typically are rotating through all of these different services, learning from the specialists, learning from the technicians, and you have your classmates around you in small numbers. And so you have that camaraderie. But there's this kind of like, I'll say it's kind of a newer wave, although it's probably been 20 plus years since Western U started out as the first model of this, of this hybrid distributive where rather than kind of putting every all the students into that teaching hospital setting, we distribute out our students in that final year into actual practices. So all kinds of practices, small, large, food animal, equine, research facilities, zoo, wildlife rehab, you name it. I think because of COVID, we have had to limit that, at least for our program within the United States. But our hope is we would love to extend past the borders into different parts of the world especially since we're a border state to Mexico, there's a lot of opportunity there to do some collaborative work right there. And we have a lot of native nations too. So I think that we're looking to collaborate with different tribal lands to see if we can offer opportunities that serve the community in a very intentional and purposeful way. And so that's really kind of the idea is that we're having the students rotate through actual practices. So they learn kind of those day one ready, what we call day one ready competencies, those skills, whether they're clinical, surgical, critical thinking skills, communication skills that are necessary for a new graduate to be able to be successful and to thrive and grow as a veterinary professional. So I think it's a different model than what most people know if they are probably 15 years plus in the profession. But I think there's some really great opportunities there for our students to learn. And then just from being able to kind of select what position or possibly an employer that maybe you already have a little bit of experience of seeing how they operate, how they work. When I talk to current owners, everyone's trying to find talent, right? And if you can say, hey, we're a really good place. We want to work with these students and show them what we can do. To me, that makes a ton of sense. Part of your role right now is to help kind of establish those relationships. Is that correct? Like, what are you hearing from those that are trying to say, hey, we want your Arizona students. We want to learn. We want to see and we want to show them. And then do you feel like the students then are going to have a better opportunity to understand like, and I hate the term the real world because I think that's such BS because everyone has their own experiences from when they're growing up. Yep. But what it's going to look like when they're done with school. Yeah, so definitely. It's similar to the experience I had when I was program director for the vet tech program at Purdue is those new graduates are really kind of the lifeblood of how the programming works. And so building that network of practices, whether they're privately owned or corporate, quite frankly, they want our graduates before they graduate. And that's why a lot of them are interested in joining our network of hospitals, because they recognize exactly what you said, which is that the earlier they can see the students in action and work with them, it's essentially like four-week working interviews for both sides, right? For the practice that's looking to hire, and then for the student that's looking for a career. And again, a really great way because when I took my first job out of school and I got very lucky that it was a good match for me, I had never done a working interview in that practice. I spent maybe a total of two hours between my interview and kind of a tour. And then I signed the contract and I was locked in for at least a year. 
And I was fortunate that it worked out, but to be able to do four weeks and then rotate through you know, almost an entire year, that's a lot of opportunities to find out what you need as a new graduate, what you need in order to be successful and what are like nice to haves versus need to haves, I guess is the way I try to explain it to the students. Like, yeah, it would be really nice to have all these toys like ultrasound and advanced imaging and all of these things. But perhaps what you really need is somebody who's going to mentor you in developing your surgical skills. And if this is a place that over the four weeks, they knew that and they did that for you, then perhaps this stays on your list as a place that you want to work at. So yeah, I think there's a lot of interest from practice owners to be in the network because they know that's the quickest route to get to those graduates. If you had to give advice to those that were wanting to be in the network, let's say, what are characteristics, what are traits, what are things that they're needing to do before you can say, yeah, we feel like this would be a good fit. Is there any advice there? This is clearly anecdotal. I left all my research material somewhere else. But I would say one of the things that a lot of the soon-to-be graduates are interested in is what does mentorship look like for me if I join this practice or whatever this workplace is? How much mentorship will I get? What will it look like? And I think every practice has a different style for how they do. And every individual has a different style for how they do mentorship or how they perceive mentorship should look. And I think another area, and this kind of blends into my work with the Multicultural Vet Med Association, is that a lot of students and graduates, as well as recent graduates, are very concerned with what is the culture, what is the community that I'm going to find myself in, and will I feel included? Will I feel like I belong? And some of that speaks to the mentorship piece, but then some of that speaks to the culture within a workplace to say, are people pronouncing my name correctly? Are they identifying me by the pronouns that I want to be identified as? Are they supporting my mental health and well-being? Is it going to be difficult for me to set boundaries based on kind of the expectations of the practice that you take calls? I don't care if it's your day off. I don't care if you're on vacation for two weeks, you answer your emails, you pick up the phone. Or is it that, you know what, Dr. Tran is on vacation this weekend. Let's not bother her. Here's the person that should take her calls when she's out, that kind of thing. And then obviously, when you think of race and ethnicity, that's another piece of it as well is like, how does a practice create that sense of belonging? Are they open to, do they see the benefits of having a diverse workforce? And are they reaping the benefits of that diverse workforce? And are they able to retain them? I think those are all the things that a lot of the graduates or soon-to-be graduates are thinking about. Cool. Yeah, I appreciate that. I think there's a number of folks that listen to the podcast that are on either side of that. And it's good just to kind of hit on some of those key points because, again, if everyone needs really good, bright, young doctors to be successful, like how can you then not only attract them initially, but then I think the retention part, going back to the culture and how the expectation of what the day-to-day is going to look like, but anyone can put on a smile and get along for a couple months. What are you going to do for a couple of years? And then what are you going to do beyond that? And then how can you make sure that what they ultimately are there for and what they're trying to accomplish, that you can help get them there? Like if practice ownership is the thing that they're telling you from day one that they eventually would love to have. And you know, that's never going to be a thing there. Like that's always going to be a point of, I think, frustration for that doctor. So Mm -hmm. I think that's really smart. Anything else on MCVMA or kind of the Arizona front that you want to dig in a little bit? Well, I think one of the interesting things that kind of gets to that last question that you asked, Isaiah, is other ways that practices can help attract graduates or retain employees 
is something that we're implementing within University of Arizona's program, which is on day one of when the students start the rotations, we're having them sit down with their on-site veterinarian to essentially put together like a very short learning agreement so that on day one of a four-week rotation, the student and the veterinarian sit down to say, these are the three goals that I have that I want to accomplish in the next four weeks. And for those early on in the process, maybe not as experienced, some of that could be very foundational stuff. Like I want to get really good at a physical exam. I want to get really good at palpating for luxating patellas. I mean, it could be very specific and foundational like that. Or you could have some that are further along. And so maybe they want to get really good at interpreting abdominal ultrasound or whatever that is, because our students are coming to us with a variety of experiences before they come into vet school. And so having that learning agreement essentially meets that student, that individual where they're at and says, here is what we as a practice can do to help you further your education. And I see the same thing happening with new grads or new employees is, is there an opportunity to sit down on a regular basis and have some kind of a learning agreement to say for the individual to say, here are the things that I really want to get better at. And for the practice to say, okay, now we know what the goals are. You want to learn more about practice management. You want to learn more about radiation safety. You want to get better at your soft tissue surgery skills. And so that way, it offers people the ability to say up front, these are the things that are important to me. And hopefully they align with what that practice is able to provide so that you don't kind of do this blanket, like everybody's going to do X, Y, and Z training, whether or not you need it, whether or not you want it, whether or not you care. And this makes it more kind of, it gets to that equity piece of realizing like not everybody's the same. And so how can I address the needs of the individuals so that they are more successful and that they hopefully will thrive and that we can retain them? Sure. Yeah. Thank you for that. I've not had anyone on the podcast that's been on an investigation like committee. It is interesting because when we chatted offline, one of the big things that we chatted on is like, it doesn't have to be scary. It doesn't have to be one of these things where, hey, we're out to get you. But I just wanted you to kind of walk through a little bit of A, what you've seen, obviously you can't talk about specific cases, but what you've seen has led people to get into trouble. And then things that it's like, hey, that just might be someone that's just a little out there that's doesn't really understand and is just unhappy and just wants to find a way to try to punish you. But yeah, I'd just like to understand that a little bit better and maybe share some of the different things that you've seen in the experiences and conversations you've had. Yeah. So I think that the work at the Arizona Vet Med Examining Board, specifically with the investigative committee, just for context, is that when there are concerns about the care of an animal or that the State Practice Act for Veterinary Medicine has potentially been violated, in the care of an animal within the state, then those claims go to, or those reports go to the examining board. And so then their administrative staff then divides out those cases among, there's two different investigative committees. So we see half of those cases and or we hear half of those cases and the, the other investigative committee hears the other half, but they all end up being reviewed by the examining board regardless, but we're kind of like the first pass. And so some of the stuff that I think are kind of like recurring themes is there's definitely a lot of fear about the unknown from the veterinarian or the technician from the licensed professional to say, oh my gosh, the examining board has asked me to provide proof, medical records, et cetera, about this patient I've seen, which was probably like six to nine to over a year ago, depending on when the statutes of limitation are. And it can be really 
terrifying for a veterinarian, the idea that they might have some action taken on their license or they may potentially lose their license. And I think some of the things that oftentimes come up are miscommunications between the owner and the veterinarian or the veterinary staff about kind of what the expectation for the pet is. Are they going to completely recover from this or is this a terminal illness and we're just trying to manage and keep them as pain-free as possible? I think there's sometimes miscommunications around that. Sometimes there's miscommunications about whether or not something should get referred out to a specialist in the case of a general practitioner and what that communication looks like with the owner, because sometimes owners hear, well, they told me I shouldn't go to a specialist because there's nothing that they can do for my pet, or they were made to feel really guilty. Like if you don't go to the specialist, then you're a horrible owner which in many cases, that is not at all what the veterinarian said. I think it's just the emotions start to get into their heads. And in some cases with owners, there can be some factor of guilt because maybe they can't afford to do that special treatment or go to that referral. And a lot of times what happens too is there can be missing information from or incomplete medical records is the other piece that I see quite frequently where Maybe, you know, like on a follow-up, on a recheck, on a surgery, it wasn't quite clear what the surgical site looked like and what the expectations were or what was told to the owner as far as what are next steps, what are the things you should watch for. A very common thing is that if an owner, you offer care for treatment to an owner and they decline, sometimes that doesn't make it into the medical record, that conversation. And so then it becomes a little bit of a he said, she said to say, well, you're telling me that you offered it to the client and that they declined, the owner is saying you never offered it. And I can't see anything in the medical record, which is a legal document. So that I think is some of the more frustrating situations where there's just not everybody is aligned in the narrative that they're sharing. And then you look at the medical record and there's nothing clear that says in there. And so what I tell students that ask about the work that I do on the investigative committee and what I tell other veterinarians that have concerns about going to the board is I say, the best thing you can do for your, like, no one comes to the board because they have over communicated with an owner. In fact, it's quite the opposite where you probably had great conversation with the owner, but it didn't make it into the medical record. And now we're having to go by pieces of information. So as much as possible, I know it takes a little bit of extra time, but put that stuff into the medical record. Every conversation that you've had, whether it was in person, via phone, if you're providing interpretation of diagnostic tests and those types of things, make sure that that makes its way into the records so that you have information you can share if you need to. The other thing I offer to people is that in, in at least in Arizona, and I think probably in many states, if not all states, the hearings that happen on a monthly or whatever their cadence is basis are open to the public. So you could, if you wanted to, as a current veterinary student or a graduate, you can actually sit in and listen to some of the cases that are being heard. So you can get an idea of where are the concerns coming from? At what point is it something that is a violation of the State Practice Act? Or in some cases, is it more that the veterinarian did everything that they can, but the outcome was not ideal for that pet or for that owner, in which case those oftentimes get dismissed. So that's really kind of what I try to relay to people about what happens to kind of take away some of the mystery of what happens in the examining board and the investigative committee meetings. Yeah. So take good notes, communication. Yeah. Makes sense. Totally makes sense. What's a moment in your professional life that stands out 
maybe most, and I know most is a big word, but that is one of those kind of defining moments and kind of why, why do you look back on that either positive or negative? Did you prep me for this one? I feel like you didn't. <laughs> no, I, ha- I have to give you something that you got to give me what is off the top of your head, because I think that's probably the answer that would be one that is authentic. And I've had people ask me, and you'll actually get a chance to ask me a question. I don't have any idea. So that's always one that I'll throw out there. <laughs> but I think honestly, there's a few pivotal moments, I think for me, some of them we kind of talked about, but you know, most recently, I think I was kind of on track to become the president of the Multicultural Vet Med Association in the calendar year 2020. And as we all know, 2020 was quite a turbulent year for many reasons between COVID, social injustice and unrest, all kinds of things going on in 2020. And so I think it was about midway through that term around May that things just like went through the roof as far as MCVMA. We were very much being looked to to say, what should we do as a profession? And we felt the need to step up and make a very clear statement about what was or was not happening within veterinary medicine, whose voices were being listened to, and who were the people that weren't at the table. And I think it was at that moment that it was very clear to me that what was initially just this like, well, I'm just going to be president because I've kind of rolled through all the other positions. And then I'll just kind of see my way out at the end of 2020. It became very clear that that was a pivotal moment for our profession to say, these are things that have been going on for a really long time that have not been addressed as far as the lack of diversity, racial and ethnic diversity within our profession. It's having major impacts all across the profession. And so it was something that I think because I was president at that time, that it really was a moment to say, how do I want to lead and how do I want to show others the way so that it's not just moving an organization forward, but me saying, here are all the other organizations that are working towards the same end goal. Here's all the other parts of industry that are working towards the same end goal. How can we work together to collaborate, to network and to build a stronger voice for ourselves? And I think that for me was a very pivotal part of not just my professional career, but also kind of like my personal life, because I think for a long time, I separated those two things out. And then it was kind of in that year that I realized like, this is all interrelated. The struggles that I see within the profession are very much related to things that are happening in my personal life. And I don't know that I can separate it anymore. And so even though I've stepped away from my board role at MCVMA, I continue to be a huge proponent for the work that they do. And I help in other ways, right? Like I help on different task forces and within other committees, et cetera. Certainly within my role at University of Arizona, I'm involved in their diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. And yeah, it's a journey for sure. But I think that was kind of a pivotal moment for me. Yeah, absolutely. You said there were a couple and I have to ask if there's anything else outside of that. Not that that's not one that is in answering the question, but is there anything else that maybe we haven't touched on that you felt like, hey, this was really impactful, just either career or professional? I think really it was that first foray into academia. So when I took the full-time teaching position at Portland Community College for their vet tech program, I think that was another pivotal moment for me because I guess at that point I had mostly been doing shelter medicine and private practice work. And while that is very impactful and you're helping individual owners and animals, I think being in academia, there's the opportunity to help to impact like future generations of veterinary professionals. 
And so that to me was like a really pivotal moment to say, wow, here's other opportunities that I never saw for myself and ways that I can impact the profession on a larger scale. So that was another moment, I think, that was kind of a turning point for me. Yeah, the kind of that multiplier effect where you can only do so much with what you get your hands on versus having 30 set of hands and then each year getting 30 more and then it's more and then you take a different role. Yeah, it's really cool. Love that. So since I ask a question that maybe you weren't prepared for, but it was a great answer, I always let guests ask me a question if there's anything that they're curious about, want to know more. So you are free and open to ask anything from my perspective, if there's whether it's personal, professional, anything that's top of mind. Sure, I'll ask a burning question. So I know, Isaiah, that you have interviewed quite a few people within the veterinary profession. And so while you're not a veterinarian, I think you have a lot of insight. And what do you think is one of the biggest challenges that veterinary medicine faces right now? It's a good question. I do feel very fortunate because I get to just kind of listen to a lot of different inputs, right? It's not necessarily you know, Isaiah's thoughts. It's more of all these different people that get to provide feedback and I can kind of work through it. Yeah, I think it's going to be the ability to have talent. I think just talent in general, whether that's someone that is a CSR, whether that is the associate veterinarian, whoever it is, like the profession is not going to be able to take care of all the demands. And I've heard a couple of people say, shoot, like you can open a startup and it would be really hard to fail at the moment. But if you are fully staffed, right? Like, it's just so hard to keep and retain. And that's where I look at the conversations around pricing and how are things priced. And it's not necessarily like you're trying to gouge or make a ton of money, but it's like you have to be able to pay your people and take care of things to make sure that you're there. And I think there's just a big disconnect and has been between human healthcare and veterinary medicine on like how pricing is done, where you actually pay for it. And again, I think pet insurance can play a huge, huge role, which is non-veterinary clients of Vincere. I talk about pet insurance all the time <laughs> and tell our, our advisors like, hey, if they have pets, like talk about pet insurance. We just had someone the other day that had a quote for over $12,000 for something. They had pet insurance, which is great, right? Because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, everyone wants the same thing. They want their pet to have the best care possible. And if you can have a way to afford that, great. And so I think the ability for pet insurance to come into play more will allow for better care and will allow for more revenue that can then, this is the key part, it needs to then be distributed to the team. And yes, not everyone is going to make the same amount. Everyone does not have the same skill set. And that is okay. But you can still take care of the people that are there to make sure they have a living wage to be able Uh to stay in that role. And we were talking at Purdue, actually, you had my cousin, and she's no longer in veterinary medicine, right? It was stressful. And I think from a pay, it's like, well, what else can I do and make the same amount of money and not feel like I'm getting you know, day after day crying on the way home, right? Or just feeling beat up. So I think, again, that's not going to solve it. Money's not going to solve everything there. But I think if people are able to see how the increase in revenue can then help the rest of the team have, you know, if I'm a human healthcare nurse versus a tech, it's like the wage disparity is huge, but the roles and the education are very, very similar. So like, how can you get that to be the same or close to it so that people do have like, hey, this is a career where I'm making a good amount, not this is just what I'm doing because I love it. So I view the talent piece, but then that's more than just the talent piece because it has so many other factors. But I just think it's how do you get good people all bought into the same thing and continue to, as an owner, and I talk a lot about how narrative is so important and like, how do you tell stories and what's the why behind that? And the idea of you can keep people by treating them well, and empowering them, like you talked about, like, hey, go back to the team. How do we want to change this thing? 
and get them bought in. They don't have to be making the most amount of money. They need to know that they're respected, that you care for them, invest in them and pay them. So that's like a, an answer, non-answer, but that's what I see. That seems to be consistently the theme and how it gets solved is I think people that are willing to do it differently, that are willing to approach it and say, you know what, we don't have to do it the exact same way that it's been done and go from there. You got to experiment a little bit and be okay with failing. And I know that's probably really difficult. It's difficult for everybody. I think it's especially difficult. It seems like with the veterinary medicine to have a so much drill in your head that you have to get it right because the consequences are life or death to where uh-huh. then if you become someone that can make decisions with the team, it's not life and death at that point, but you still don't want to be like, oh yeah, I screwed up. I failed and we got to change. And so I think sometimes it's the perfect gets in the way of good and like allowing things to evolve and change. So I don't know if that's helpful or not, but there's probably some good stuff in the chat there. I don't know that I can really pinpoint one specific challenge that is like the big challenge within veterinary medicine, because I think we have a lot of things going on, but certainly that piece around staffing, retention, how do you build a workplace that is thriving and where people feel valued? I think at the end of the day, and you kind of talked about that, Isaiah, is there's not one thing that's going to solve all the problems that is probably a multi-pronged approach and it's going to take some creativity and to some degree is going to take the ability to let go of the known and take some chances, right? And try something different and be innovative. And I also see the other part, which is it's an opportunity for veterinary medicine to reinvent themselves and to say like, what are those things that we just haven't really done before that we can pull from other industries, take pieces of those and redefine what success looks like in veterinary medicine. As we wrap up, I just wanted to give you the ability to kind of talk about anything that you feel like is near and dear that maybe we didn't get into that you're like, hey, I think this is really important for those within veterinary medicine to understand better. I guess one of the things, assuming that we're kind of coming up to graduation time with the spring and everything like that, I think mentorship is a very important piece of thinking about what is a big concern for new graduates. And one of the things I always share with new graduates is give yourself grace and be patient with the idea that even though you've gone to school for three or four years to become a veterinarian, you're not going to know it all. Nobody should expect you to know it all. And you're not going to be perfect in every situation. And the sooner you can learn that what you learned over the last three or four years in veterinary school was how to learn and that you have learned the critical thinking skills that will help you become a lifelong veterinary professional that you can start to let go of this idea that you have to have all the answers all the time and that you have to be perfect. And the sooner that veterinarians can learn to work as a team with that owner and to say, hey, I don't know the answer to this right now. I'm not really sure what's going on with your animal. Here's what I do know. And here's how we're going to work together to figure this out. I think you take off so much pressure to be perfect. And actually, owners really enjoy the fact that they feel empowered, that they're part of a team to figure out what's going on with their pet or their animal. And so I think that's one of the key things that I always try to relay to new grads is don't be perfect. It's unachievable and it's impossible to maintain. So just let go of that. Give yourself grace. Be patient with yourself. You are going to continue to learn as a veterinary professional over your entire career. I'm 22 years out almost of graduating from veterinary school. And I say, I don't know, on a regular basis when it has to do with veterinary medicine. And I'm okay with that. But it took me a long time to be okay with saying, I don't know. 
And so I, I want people to be okay with that. I want people to normalize the idea that we should not have all the answers, but you do have the resources available to you to find out what those answers are. Yep. For those that would like to connect, reach out, chat, is there any way that they can do that? Where would you send them? So if people are interested in the Multicultural Vet Med Association, you can find us on all the socials. So Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I think we have a YouTube channel. I know we have a YouTube channel. And then our website. So www.mcvma.org. There's not really a place if you have questions about the investigative committee other than to directly email me. But I don't know that I'm ready to give out my email address on a podcast. (laughs) That's totally fine. You are on LinkedIn. So if someone wanted to reach out Yes, I am on LinkedIn. You're right. They could go to LinkedIn and you can kind of see if it makes sense to (laughs) dive more in depth there. But no, I'm always amazed at people that are like, yeah, call me, email me. That's great. But I don't know if that would be me. So I appreciate that. It's like, eh, we'll see. So reach out if you have questions, if things are there. And yeah, I really, really appreciate your time coming on and sharing all the different kind of areas of veterinary medicine that you've spent time in, that you've had an impact on. And there's some really good things I think to take away from this, whether someone is really young in their career or whether they're a current owner or they're on the other end of it, of just seeing how like this profession is on the verge of some really big changes. So thank you. Yeah. And thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only. You should consult your team before implementing anything. Isaiah Douglas is a partner of Vincere Wealth Management. Isaiah is registered in the state of Indiana, California, Texas. The biggest compliment you can give to this podcast is to share it with a friend. Reviews help the show get found, and Apple Podcasts is the platform that predominantly is how people listen to the show. If you have three to five minutes, you like the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts, give us an honest rating and review. That'll help more people find the show. For all of today's links and information, head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can subscribe via your favorite podcast platform platform so you won't miss another episode. Finally, if you'd like more information, insights, and have the ability for your voice to be heard and interact with show guests, join the private Facebook group. You can go to the Veterinary Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll all the way to the bottom where it says about your host and then click on the Facebook icon. That'll bring you into the Facebook group. I'll approve you. You'll be in. And then I'd love to hear your questions, feedback, and anything that you'd like to see added to the show. So with all that, thank you so much for listening. I'll be talking again to you soon.